Live from the heartland and the crossroads of America, it's Tony Katz today. What they have in D.C. is theatrics, it's performative, but it doesn't actually produce results for people. In Florida, I'm a leader. I'm not an entertainer. I'm not running a soap opera down here. I make promises to people, and then I use the authority that I have, and I work with the legislature to deliver the promises. And so the results speak for themselves. While they have added massive amounts to the debt, I've paid down 25% of our state's total debt just Excuse since me, I've Ron, been governor. Ron, I'm sorry to, sorry to interrupt. No one cares right now. You, Nikki Haley, Pence... Burgum, Scott, Ramaswamy, it's as if you're on a different planet. No one cares what you have to say at the moment. No one's paying attention. You are an afterthought of afterthoughts. I'm not saying that's a good thing. I'm saying that's reality. Tony Katz, what is going on, everybody? Tony Katz today, that's the name of the show, thing we do here every Monday through Friday. 833-GOT-TONY, 833-468-8669. You're not an entertainer. You're not running a soap opera. Those are all nice Trump digs. People still think that Trump can be Speaker of the House. You know, he's willing to help out for 30, 60, 90 days. That's just fantastic. That was yesterday. This morning, he goes on Truth Social, letting everybody know that Jim Jordan has his full support. The endorsement uh, clear, saying, Jim, his wife Polly, and family are outstanding. He will be a great Speaker of the House and has my complete and total endorsement. That's the endorsement for Jim Jordan, different than the endorsement he gave to Kevin McCarthy. What? We're going to pretend that these things didn't happen. Others can pretend. I have no interest in it. I I like Jim Jordan. I have no issue with Jim Jordan. I know there are stories about Jim Jordan unproven in my view. I know, of course, oh, Jim Jordan, he's just after Biden. He's a Nazi. I will get into that. I got called a Nazi yesterday. Who? Who? And then they were like, no, I didn't call you a Nazi. I called you a Nazi supporter. And you're 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 a supporter of Nazi groups. Oh, oh, there's a there's a difference. That's like saying I didn't call you fat. I just called you hefty, you big tubsy wubsy bastard. There's there's very little difference. Very little di- by the way, who had Tubsy Wubsy on their scorecard? Please see the bookie for your winnings. With Trump endorsing Jordan, there is a very, very small path for Steve Scalise. I don't think I'm speaking out of school when when I say so. Scalise has got himself a tough road. Scalise is number two, right? He's the House Majority Leader. Speaker of the House, House Majority Leader. He was the whip. He has got a tough road to try and overcome this. But he made his case on Fox earlier today. Yeah, we spoke, obviously, you know, a lot of friendships in this race, a lot of folks that, you know, have been talking to other folks on the outside to bring in to this race. There's a lot of interest in this race, you know, but at the end of the day, it's a lot of one-on-one conversations over the last few days I've been having with my colleagues. 
and a lot of introspection about how we get things back on track. The problems that we have internally, they don't go away with the new speaker. But the real question the members have is how do we get things back on track? And the reason I've been able to build such a strong base of support over these last few days that's been growing is that I've got a long proven record as somebody who knows how to unify Republicans to fight on the battles that matter for the families who gave us this majority. I don't know if any of that will matter. You're McCarthy's guy. Maybe that'll matter. Maybe it'll matter that McCarthy's team is picking up the phones and calling members of Congress to support Jim Jordan. I I don't I don't know. I, I, I don't know how that's going to play out. I do know is it, it, that if uh, this is who you have against Jim Jordan, you have a better chance of him being speaker than ever before. Jim Jordan knew more about what Donald Trump had planned for January 6th than any other member of the House of Representatives. Jim Jordan was involved, was part of the conspiracy in which Donald Trump was engaged as he attempted to overturn the election. That's Liz Cheney. And there can be no greater endorsement for Jim Jordan amongst these Republicans than Liz Cheney saying you were part of a conspiracy. Uh, Full disclosure, this is the first time I have ever heard anyone ever discuss Jim Jordan and January 6th as having some culpability. Now, maybe it's been said before. It's possible for me to miss something. I'm as human as the next person. More attractive, but still just as human. I have never heard this discussed. Ever, ever, ever. And I have never heard these comments until now. Jim Jordan, if you think about the extent to which Uh, people have now said, well, it was Speaker Pelosi's fault that Donald Trump's mob invaded the Capitol, that, you know, the security wasn't sufficient enough. The person who knew, there were probably more than just Jim, but there was a handful of people of which he was the leader who knew what Donald Trump had planned. Now, somebody needs to ask Jim Jordan, why didn't you report to the Capitol Police what you knew Donald Trump had planned. You were in those meetings at the White House. January 6th is Jim Jordan's fault. Good Lord, Liz Cheney. You want to talk about being broken. I don't think there's any way to sell that at all. Hold on, wait, this just in. CNN will now use this as their main talking point for the rest of the year. Okay, I guess you can get people to buy into that. Did I miss it? Was this a a long, detailed conversation uh, about Jim Jordan's culpability regarding the riots of January 6th that I somehow missed? Or is this now a conversation because Jim Jordan could be the next speaker? I'm not interested in throwing things out like this. But I'm also not interested in caring what the political left has to say. Tony, that was Liz Cheney. Yes, I stick by my words. People who have been broken by Trump might as well be on the same side. Reality matters.
Reality matters. Anybody who seriously considered Trump for speaker, and I mean, I put it on social media, this means Trump for speaker, right? Anybody who seriously considered it or is actually seriously considering it is certifiable. Let us make the divide right now. Let us, I'm not talking to you. I'm talking to the people who are like, oh, Trump's going to be a speaker. Trump has to be a speaker. This is all part of his plan. You are crazy. Now, I don't think it's good policy for a radio host to say to the audience, you're crazy. But what else could one say except you live in a fantasy? Of course it's nuts. And let me tell you, it would be awful if the party did it. It would be a level of unseriousness that, to me, would mean a turnoff of independents who would be desperately important to taking back the White House. Right now, Trump does well in that regard, and Trump could be the nominee for president. Trump could take back the White House. Not that you'll see me arguing against it. If my choice is Trump or Biden or whoever they get to replace Biden, if that should be the way it goes... Uh, unless somehow there's a magnificent Democratic candidate who I'm like, wait a second, they're a genius. I don't see that coming. I'll go with, uh, in some cases, you can argue the devil I know. I'll, I'll go with the guy who had success between 2016 and 2020 or 2017 and 2021, depending on how you look at these things. I'll go with the, the success. I'll go with the track record. Never mind the insanity. And by the way, it is still stunning that the left cannot figure out how it is that Trump is still so popular. Look at all the indictments. You put it, brought up all the indictments so you could scream, look at all the indictments. We don't care about that. You don't care about indictments. We care about specific things. We care certainly, for example that he would have had classified documents. We, we do indeed care about that. But if we're now going to say that it's wrong to have classified documents, which we should say, by the way, then it has to be wrong all the way around. And Biden had classified documents. So that he has to be equally wrong. But you're not showing equal levels of outrage. And can we also note that these things are not equal? A question that we're actually looking forward to getting answered. He's the president of the United States. The president of the United States can declassify anything at any time. Since when is that not true? You know who says they have the answer? Liar Andrew McCabe, former FBI deputy director. Oh my gosh, Kaylin, it's so unbelievably sensitive. Nuclear information about some of our most sensitive uh, national defense assets. And and before I talk about that, I should just say, in response to uh, the Trump team's public statement, there is no proper context. There is no context that makes disclosing national defense information to a foreign national acceptable or lawful really under any circumstances whatsoever. So that's where we are. This information is so sensitive that it is one of the very, very few uh, categories of information that even an, a sitting president cannot unilaterally declassify. So Congress has carved out 
special uh, laws to cover nuclear defense information. This clearly would fall within that purview. So it's not something that Trump could declassify, even if he was president. First, um, the president, as I know it, can declassify anything the president chooses. Secondly, if the president can't do it, who? This perfunctory from the FBI who lied to the FBI in an investigation to the work he was doing poorly with the FBI? This punk? He gets to decide? Some perfunctory that nobody elected gets to decide what can be declassified? Never mind that I don't want anybody with nuclear secrets. Never mind I don't think they should be shared. And never mind that I think is Trump is wrong. The question is about the legality of the thing. On the morality of the thing, that's when I have the ballot box. So we're all watching with bated breath how that case is going to play out. Of course we are. But you think we're buying into the RICO predicate, the RICO case in in Fulton County? You're crazy. You think we're buying into this Letitia James nonsense in New York? He lied about his his wealth. Maybe. I haven't seen the, the, the data in terms of he's worth this, but he claims to be worth that. But there's an argument about... Um, if he got a loan and he paid back the loan, what are we discussing here? The bank gave him the loan. Caveat emptor, buyer beware. What is the issue? He didn't steal the money. No one's making an argument they stole the money. They're making an argument that he embellished. And I, and I by the way, am willing to totally believe that. I just don't know to what extent that is the, 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 the crime and whose fault did the bank check? Did the bank care? Or did the bank just want to be doing business with Donald Trump? But am I supposed to trust somebody who ran for office on the idea of going after Donald Trump? Somebody who runs for office like their Leventry Beria, show me the man and I'll show you the crime, who ran Stalin's secret police? No. No, 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 no. I'm not going I'm, I'm to do that. The people who support Trump look through these things and say this is clearly an attack because so many of these indictments could have come two years ago. But you did it now to engage and interfere in an election. We see you. Even me, who isn't Trump 24-7. How could you not see that this is election interference? It's the only thing it is. Everybody else is out of their damn mind if they say it's anything else. They see through it and they say, oh, yeah, I can vote for Trump for president. I can see that again. Trump for speaker? Are you all silly? Can we get some grown-ups back in the room? Temporary speaker? That does not solidify your base and those that you need to win a presidential election. That screams clown show freak. Let's go find some adults. So I'm very happy that Trump is endorsed in this, and he endorses Jordan, which means to me, I don't know how it's not Jordan. I know they're going to have this talk with Brett Baer on Monday, some kind of round robin, Jordan and and, uh, Hearn and Scalise. Why they're doing it beats the hell out of me. I, I really don't know. And how angry can these people possibly be at Fox when Fox is the only place that they go? I guess that's the place that sells the audience. But I really do hope this happens on one ballot and done. One ballot and done, no histrionics. 
What are the odds I'm not going to get what I want? Tony Katz here. This is Tony Katz today. No, I'm, there will not be another foot of wall constructed on my administration. Well, that's not true, sir. I know it's what you said in August of 2020 when you were campaigning from the basement. Uh, but yes, there is going to be more foots of wall. Feet of wall. Yards. Meters. I don't know how we measure. Tony Katz. Tony Katz. Today, more wall is going to be built because you told us that the appropriation was there and you couldn't do anything about it. So you have to build more wall. But you already gave up a lot of uh, hardware and a lot of materials. So now we're just going to rebuy those things. We're going to spend even more money. And, and what is the plan for after you've built a wall that you have told us you're not going to build, even though Alejandro Mayorkas, the Homeland Security Secretary, said we have a clear need to build this wall? The statement was very, very clear. There's presently an acute immediate need to construct physical barriers and roads to prevent unlawful entry into the United States. He then goes back to say there is no new administration policy with respect to border walls. From day one, this administration made clear that a border wall is not the answer. That remains our position, and our position has never wavered. All right, you want want to memory hold this thing. You feel free, but we see you. And we know you said you'd never do it, and now you're doing it. And then you claim that you have to do it because of appropriations, but you stated to the public that it's because there's an acute need, and now you're backtracking on that. You don't know whether you're coming or going. It sounds like you realize that you've got a problem with the border. you got to be able to have states like New York be able to say to their uh, citizens, see, we got the Biden administration to do something about this, while being able to tell progressives, we're not really doing anything about this. Meanwhile, you're now going to start engaging deportation of Venezuelans. It's all super confusing in the Biden White House. But it goes to the idea that they can't actually tell people that their border policy doesn't work. I think Peter Ducey asked a solid question. If you have to build a border wall, but you don't think that it's going to work, then once it's done, are you just going to tear it down? I'm not getting into hypotheticals from here. I'm just telling you what I can tell you from here. The facts are that DHS is complying with the law. This is from fiscal year. This was under fiscal year 2019 under Republican uh, leadership, and DHS is required to do this. The president asked multiple times of Congress to reappropriate. They did not, and we're not complying by the law. Thanks, everybody. And she ran away. We should note that it wasn't just Peter Ducey. Peter Alexander of NBC. As the president earlier today said that he was asked, does the border wall work? He said no. But in this statement that was posted within the last 24 hours, the Department of Homeland Security Secretary says there is presently an acute and immediate need to construct physical barriers and roads in the vicinity of the border of the United States in order to prevent unlawful entries into the United States. So who's right? The statement from the DHS secretary overnight or the president's comments today saying they don't work? So a couple of things. Yes, it showed up on the register today, but the announcement, it, this is not new. This is from six months well, ago. Well, it is new because the waiving of the laws actually didn't happen. <laughs> but it was, it, this is something that uh, was out back, that the DHS was put out back in, in, uh, in, in, in six months ago. Well, so and now they announced. Did they no. waive the laws six months ago? Peter Alexander actually did the full-on reporting and pushing. It was really nice to see. Uh, I will put this up on the Rumble channel, rumble.com slash Tony Katz. We'll get it at TonyKatz.com because credit where it's due. 
The White House is all over the place on this, and it all comes from the fact that the border's a failure. I'm Tony Katz. I have been officially warned, ladies and gentlemen, people of all ages, it's about to get wonky up in here. I don't, I don't know if that requires any type of twerking with the wonky. I'll leave that to others in the club. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today. Guys, find everything at TonyKatz.com. Dr. Matt Will joins me, economist at the University of Indianapolis. And it's wonky because the jobs numbers came out. And I'm telling you, they don't make any sense. The people over at ADP, they do the payroll stuff. They're always like, oh, we know what the jobs numbers are going to be. I think they came out with 86,000 jobs. And it wasn't 86,000, which is okay because the Dow Jones estimate was 170,000 jobs. Missed it by that much. I thought I had that sound effect. Oh, dang it. I really thought I had that sound effect. It was 336,000. 336,000 jobs created in September. Missed it by that much. I told you I had it. How does one miss by that? And then you have the realization that we have 9.6 million jobs available in the country. We hired double what we thought we were going to hire, and we have more openings and jobs than we did last month. Am I supposed to think the economy is roaring? Because what the economy shows me is that it's far from roaring. So, Dr. Matt Will, let's start with these jobs numbers. How did the Dow get it so wrong? Well, I don't think that the Dow got it wrong. I think the Dow was um, just surprised by this. But I am shocked that the Dow was surprised because this information is completely consistent with what you and I have been talking about for the past two weeks. And if you give me a chance, I'm going to tell the story of why it's consistent with every piece of data we've gotten, even though the market doesn't understand it. So here, here are the things that we've discussed over the past couple of weeks, Dr. Matt, Will, and I, and you guys ha- have been here. We've talked about the 10-year treasury, which is the benchmark, the number by which we would then discuss uh, the 30-year fixed mortgages. And we've seen that 10-year treasury bounce over 4.8%. It hit over 4.8% today. The minute these numbers came out, boom, the 10-year went up, which means we're certainly in the inverted yield curve where a six-month investment makes you more money than a 10-year investment. We've seen the interest rates go up on houses, and then we have seen the amount of jobs grow, like the amount of jobs available grow. So we've talked about the 10-year, we've talked about the six-month, we've talked about interest rates for mortgages, and we've talked about job uh, growth or opportunities for jobs, openings, grow in the United States. With all of that in the backdrop, how does this number, this creation of 336,000 jobs when the estimate was 170,000, how does this make sense? First of all, it's not a creation. It's not a creation. Let me explain exactly what's happening. I'll give you the big picture and then the details. The big picture is, We are reversing the great resignation. That is what's beginning to happen. We have mentioned on this show that there are 4 million jobs short from the pre-pandemic trend. 4 million short. We are still digging ourselves out of the hole. This is exactly what I would have expected. Because remember, last week we said 
we reported on a government report that indicated that the highest savings rate usage, usage in history, more people are dipping into their savings than we've ever seen in history to pay their daily living expenses. We've seen 9.6 million openings. There's a shortage of labor. The unemployment rate didn't change. The participation rate didn't change. That means people are getting off their butts and they're going back to work. They've spent all their savings. There's no more cash to, 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 to use to spend their expenses. So they've got to go to the job. They got to get off their butts and they got to start working. And we're going to see more of this, but it's not job creation. Do not let cringe spin you that this is job creation. It's going to continue because we're still in the hole 4 million. We haven't dug ourselves out of the hole. People can't sit at home anymore. They're getting off their butts and going to work. That's what's happening. All right. Let's let's take a moment. Talking to Dr. Matt Will, economist at the University of Indianapolis. I, I had yet to check the labor force participation rate. 62.8%. 62.8% unchanged over the month. I don't understand how that number works in in. In- well, let me let me tell you. This, Go wait, this, I got to tell you, this is exactly the reason it didn't change, and the reason the unemployment rate didn't change, even though we added three hundred and thirty-six thousand more jobs. Plus, last month was up revised two hundred thousand. It's because more people entered the workforce. More people are now looking for jobs. So, because the numerator went up, the denominator also went up. So that's why those numbers didn't change. And thus the ratio is the same. Okay, that makes sense. I think I think everybody gets that. We could see how that works. Everything moved in, in and I think it's weird that it kind of, I'm, I'll say parity, right? It, it worked in the same exact number, 62.8%. But now go back over that, that JOLTS report as it's referred to, J-O-L-T-S. 9.6 million openings in the United States, not 8.8 million, it went up. The openings are growing because the great resignation is ending. Do those, is, is that correlation? Okay. Two things can happen at the same time. It's possible for some people to quit their jobs and other people to enter the, a new job. Those two things can happen at the same time. And that is what's happening. We have a, a growing economy. It's not growing by leaps and bounds, but it is expanding. So that's where you're seeing this need for labor. There's still some people being laid off. There's still some people quitting because of the recession. Don't forget, I think we're in a non-technical recession because the rest of the world is. And so there's still that drag on the economy in one part, but there's an expansion in the other. Let me give you a quote. Let me give you a quote. This is from George Mateo. He's the chief investment officer at Key Private Bank. And here's the quote. Slow down. What slowdown? The U.S. labor market continues to exhibit amazing strength with the number of new jobs created last month nearly twice as large as expected. That would signal to me, a layman, outsider looking in, that everybody sees happy times ahead and good times ahead. But the minute this number came out, the futures went to absolute crap. I don't know where uh, things will be when the day ends, but by like an hour into the market, the Dow was down 250 points. George Mateo wrong or George Mateo right? Well, okay. First of all, he's 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 a smart person who's a retail banker who is you know in charge of private banking. So of course, there's more of a positive spin because his clients are positive. I don't want to comment on him. I'll probably get a nasty gram from him later in the day. But let me focus on what the market did. What the market said was we don't have stagflation. And again, you and I talked about this. 
there's the unemployment, there's the inflation, there's the slow growth. We don't have the unemployment problem, so we don't have stagflation. This is what the market heard. Rates are going up. Rates are going up. The Fed will continue to fight the inflation dragon. Rates are going up. And Tony, it's a simple formula. Cash flow on the top, interest rates on the bottom. The bottom number goes up, the market drops. It's that simple. Rates are going to keep going up. That's what the market sees. And they said, "Uh uh-oh. And the rates are going to keep going up. Let's let's go back over it. Are we talking about the federal funds rate? We're talking about Jerome Powell and the the Federal Reserve. Yes. Those rates. Are we talking about interest rates because of the where the ten year Treasury bond benchmark is at, and that continues to grow? Both, both, because as 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 Jerome Powell increases the Fed funds rate, that will in this current environment push the other rates up, because that's where it all starts. It's like Fed rate plus. So when he increases his rates, everybody else is going to see a rate increase. And that's what the market sees is happening because the market knows he's going to fight inflation. He just got to notice, Jerome, it's okay to fight inflation. Unemployment's under control. Let's move to something else quickly and see if there is a connection. And this is Tesla. Tesla has been cutting the prices of their vehicles, of course, electric vehicles. The latest today is that Tesla is cutting Model 3 and Model Y prices in the U.S. because they're not selling. So the Model 3, which is usually $40,240, is now $38,990. We can argue that this is a function of a specific industry and a specific class of vehicles within that industry and the government intervention. Or we can discuss this as a trend that we might see throughout multiple levels of retail. Does anything we're seeing about the numbers, about the jobs, about the 10-year treasury, is the result of that a lowering of prices in the retail field? No. Tony, let me, okay, I got to explain this one because I know I'm a nerd, but I've actually done research on EV pricing. And uh, you weren't aware of that, but I'm very familiar with it. The profit margin on a Tesla averages over $9,000 per unit. The average profit on a Ford made EV is $300 per unit. And so what, what, what is happening is Tesla and Elon Musk knows that they have a tremendous pricing power to grab market share because their orders have not increased at the rate they forecasted. And so what they're able to do is cut their price, steal work from the competition, and still be profitable. Now, there's a whole research behind, which we don't have time for, as to why they have these huge profit margins. But the fact is, $9,000 profit per unit versus $300. That's what he's doing. He's just stealing market share because he has the ability to cut his prices. Now, this would lead into the conversation about UAW. I wasn't planning to talk to you about the United Auto Workers and how the strike is going and the level of effect we think that's having on the economy. And, of course, the whole idea that Tesla's a non-union vehicle and Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez getting lambasted by the political left for having a non-union vehicle when she's only about the union. The UAW wants Tesla, I would assume, to, to, to unionize. 
doesn't Tesla's strength in this in terms of profitability give the big three a reason to push back on the union and say, maybe you should woe up a little? Yes, 100%. Because Tesla, it's not the fact that they're not unionized and paying higher wages. That's not their benefit. Their benefit is the ability to automate. They create a unibody, which almost nobody else does, that is an extremely low-cost body of a car that has almost no labor attached to it. The big three, they're spending tons of money on labor. And so it's not that the, the big three are against paying higher wages. They would like to be able to reduce their workforce and automate. But the unions are saying, no, you must be making these things like you made them 100 years ago. And that's the big rub here. Think about it. Ford, the most profitable EV of the big three, 300 bucks per car. They will be losing money per car once this contract is over. And tell me how we're going to shift to EV domestic pro-union AOC companies when they're losing money per car. Hint, secret. You can't make it up in volume. Well, that's going to create another weird moment, right, where, where you have – uh, the these government mandates and pressures, whether it be from President Biden or whether it be from the Energy Secretary Jennifer Granholm, as we've already seen on gas furnaces, gas stoves, etc., and market realities, which are guys, you keep forcing us in this direction. And I'm, by the way, I'm not anti EV either. I'm anti a force. And full disclosure, I do work with a a local uh, Ford dealer, Andy Moore Ford. Uh, I do work in trying uh, to let people know about their electric vehicles. I actually have a Mach-E, the electric Mustang, which I don't know why they called it a Mustang, but it's an incredible vehicle. It's in my garage right now. It, it truly is. I'm not opposed to the idea, to the concept, to the marketing, to anything. I'm opposed to government force. Uh, but I, I, I am left to wonder how these two things coming into real conflict, as you're describing it, won't have an effect on everything else. Where does the, have people been looking at the possibility of what that fight means, or are we already in it and I don't realize it? Tony, I think it's a bigger problem. And I, I, I realize this sounds very wonky and, and nerdy and ivory towerish, but it's a battle between capitalism and socialism. And I have a hybrid, you have an EV, and both of us are saying the government should stay out of our business and let us buy that or let us buy a diesel engine. It's our choice. And they're going to mandate Ford and GM and every other company, they're going to mandate that they lose money. They're already losing money on their EVs, and the government's going to mandate they lose more money? Tell me how this is not a formula for socialist disaster. It's a formula for socialist disaster. It simply can't work. But do you, uh, going back to how I started with United Auto Workers, does any of this affect uh, the economy? Does any of this uh, affect, create effect in places we're not looking? Of course it does, because it's part of this whole socialism capitalism debate. If this whole UAW thing, if the UAW gets everything they want, they will continue to once again kill the U.S. auto industry. They did it in the 80s. Toyota and Honda said thank you very much and took over the U.S. auto market. And this will further uh, put a nail in the coffin of the U.S. automakers. Dr. Matt Will, economist at the University of Indianapolis. Find him on the Twitter X. Is that what we're calling it now? Is it just officially Twitter I'm calling X? it Twitter still. Oh, well, you're, a, you're old school. On Twitter X, Dr. Dr. Matt Will, W-I-L-L, Dr. Matt Will on Twitter X. Always appreciate you, sir. More is coming up. I'm Tony Katz, and this is Tony Katz Today. 
Marjorie Taylor Greene was wrong. Now, I know that's a statement you can apply to almost anything. But when you're taking pictures with Code Pink, you're just wrong. Well, Code Pink doesn't want to fund the war in Ukraine, and we can't afford to fund the war in Ukraine. So therefore, Code Pink is my friend. Code Pink is not your friend. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today. The same Code Pink that's okay with Nicolas Maduro in Venezuela? This murderer, the people are eating pigeons. Have we forgotten that the people are eating pigeons and the Biden administration wants to strike a deal with them because he stops land leases in the United States, stops drilling in the United States, stops exploration in the United States, stops the idea of energy security in the United States, and now has to look to Venezuela and others to get us the oil that we need. Oh, but Tony, the exports are up. Oh, dear Lord, do you not look to the future? Nobody is thinking of the United States as being valuable in a future conversation about energy security. If we were, we wouldn't turn to Venezuela. And then, of course, we let all the Venezuelans in. And now, suddenly, the border's a problem and we're pushing the Venezuelans out and engaging in deportations. But another subject for another day. You don't embrace Code Pink. You can argue, and they argue, that they're an anti-war group. They're not. They're an anti-Western civilization group. Really anti-American. Noah Rothman said it very well. I, I, I am more than happy to share that exact sentiment. The enemy of my enemy is my friend is not true. Sometimes they're just bad people. Sometimes they're not worth your time or attention. It's not the photo op you want to take. I'm not on the side of code pink, even if I think Ukraine funding is too much. And if this is what populist politics leads us to, siding with code pink... Count me out. I'm Tony Katz, and this is Tony Katz Today. Today.